Well, we have reached the point in our study of Isaiah. I told you a few weeks ago that Isaiah chapters 23, 24, 25, 26, excuse me, 24, 25, 26, and 27, those four chapters, 24, 25, 26, 27, were known as the apocalypse of Isaiah. And they're talking about the time of the Messiah, the time of the end of time on this earth. And there's some really cool things about apocalyptic writings because they make you feel excited about what God's going to do. There's some really cool things when, you, when you're reading apocalyptics because it just talks about God's mysteries. But the other thing that's really interesting about apocalyptic writing is you can't understand it. Because everybody has an opinion. And nobody wants to agree. So I'm going to tell you what I read and what I've learned this week as I studied and you may have heard something totally different, and you know what? That's okay. Because no one agrees <laughs> on this. We're going to read through these 13 verses in chapter 27, and then we're going to break it down a little bit and talk about it. And then we're going to share some bread and some grape juice as we celebrate the love of our Lord Jesus. Chapter 27 of Isaiah, verse 1 through 13. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent. Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would, let, I would set them all on fire. Or else, let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take, a, take root. Israel will bud and blossom, and fill all the world with fruit. Has the Lord struck her as he struck down those who struck her? Has, he been, has she been killed as those were killed who killed her? By warfare and exile you contend with her. With his fierce blast he drives her out as on a day the east wind blows. By this then will Jacob's guilt be atoned for. And this will be the full fruitage of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones to be like chalk stones, crushed to pieces, no Asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. The fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement, forsaken like the desert. There the calves graze, there they lie down, they strip its branches bare. When its twigs are dry, they are broken off, and women come and make fires with them. For this is a people without understanding, so their maker has no compassion on them, and their creator shows them no favor. In that day, the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, O Israelites, will be gathered up one by one. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. Those who were perishing in Assyria, those who were exiled in Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Now, what does this mean? <laughs> I don't know. Um, there are 
three different divisions in here. So it says a couple of scholars. If you look at verse 1, it starts with the phrase, in that day. Then if you look at verses 2 through 11, it starts out, in that day. Then if you look at verses 12 and 13, they start out, in that day. So there are scholars who believe that this is actually three different songs of worship and praise. Three different thoughts, three different pericopies. But whatever it is, there's, there's some interesting stories in here, some interesting thoughts in here. And so that's how I'm dividing this up. Chapter 27, verse 1. Then verses 2 through 11. Then verses 12 and 13. Some scholars will say that there's no division there, but that's okay. This helps me to at least make it in more, more palatable and bite-sized pieces. Now, there are other scholars that I read who said that chapter one, I mean, chapter 27, verse 1 is very disconcerting and frustrating. Because it really should be, in their understanding, part of chapter 26. Others say, no, it's a standalone verse. I quite honestly don't care. Because my, my reading of it, it stands alone quite nicely. It could go with chapter 26, the tail end of it. It doesn't really make any difference. All I'm looking for is what's here. What is it that I can, what marrow can I suck out of the bones here? And so let's look at chapter 27, verse 1. In that day, and again, this is talking about the apocalyptic time. This is talking about the time of the Messiah. This is talking about the end of the age. So at the time when the Messiah is going to come, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce and great and powerful sword, Leviathan. Now, before I go any farther with what I'm going to say, what do you understand Leviathan to be? I'm sorry? The serpent. The serpent. Okay. She cheated. She looked at the next word right after the word Leviathan. <laughs> any, does anybody have any training or study on this? I have read that A giant crocodile. Okay, so we have a serpent and we have a giant crocodile. A dragon. A dragon. Ooh. We're getting into mythological creatures here. Okay. Okay, a fire-breathing sea serpent. Yes, scales so large, you know, like the Jewish is mentioned. There was a giant crocodile, I can't think of the name of it, that was much larger today. It was a big old huge round ball on its snout. Mm -hmm. It was believed that that thing had potential to breathe fire. Okay. The Robinier beetle, it actually squirts out juice to over 270 degrees. Wow. So it's not outside of that creation. No? Okay. I... There's, I can show you all different scholars who say all different things, so anything you're saying right now makes perfect sense. There are some, some scholars who say, well, 
This whole time, Isaiah has been talking to the people of Israel saying, you know, there's all of these nations around you, and these nations are coming against you because the Lord has, made, has ordained that they are going to because of the punishment that God is inflicting on you as a nation because you were disobedient to God. And so what God is now doing is he is removing all of that, those nations that are around you. And so this idea of Leviathan, some are saying that it was the, the great powerful nations of Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, the crocodile being the symbol of Egypt and the the snake or the serpent being the symbol of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. That's one scholar's representation. There's other, and, and, and then I was like, okay, none of this is making any sense to me or helping me to own any of this. What does the Bible have to say about the Leviathan? So I just did a real quick word search. And you know what? There's only three books of the Bible that Leviathan even shows up in. One is Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. One is the book of Psalms, where it appears in two different Psalms, and one is the book of Job. Now, we're not going to take time to look at all five different areas, but we are going to look at... Yes, sir? It's also the symbol of Babylon. Okay, which is what I just said. That it's Babylon or Assyria is a symbol. Uh, Leviathan is a symbol. That's one of, the, one of the, what the scholars say. Okay, so Job chapter 41. Everyone turn there. Job chapter 41 Verses 1 through 10. Job chapter 41, verses 1 through 10. Now, Job is just before Psalms, if you're stuck, can't find it. Um, where we're at in this book, in Job chapter 41, is this is the point where Job has been crying out for God to give him an interview and give him a chance to defend himself before God for all of the troubles that Job has had. And now God has finally coming, quote-unquote, face-to-face with Job and saying, who do you think you are? I'm God. You're not. And you don't have any right to question what I have allowed or not allowed in your life. That's basically what God is saying in chapters 40 and 41 and 42. Now, chapter 41, verses 1 through 10, God is saying to Isaiah, can you pull the Leviathan with a fishhook? Or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you? Uh, for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird? Or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons and his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Listen to that. If you lay a hand on him, O Job, you will remember the struggle and you'll never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? See, what Job is, what God is saying to Job is, you're trying to mess with something that's way bigger than you. You're looking at, when you're touching, when you're trying to, to tame Leviathan, or even rouse Leviathan, you don't know what you're messing with. It is huge. And it is nothing you want to play with. Now, one scholar said, as I was reading this, that God is intimating that God has Leviathan on a little, on a little leash. And it's a plaything for God. Come here, little Leviathan. Come on. 
In other words, God is almighty, overpowering, magnificent and glorious, and he has much greater strength than Leviathan. Leviathan is his pet. But we puny humans better not even think about touching or going near or trying to rouse Leviathan, because as verse 8 says, you'll live to regret it if you do. So that's an understanding of what this idea of Leviathan is. We don't necessarily have a definitive answer from the scripture other than what Isaiah 27.1 says. It's a serpent who's coiled and a serpent, what does it say? A gliding serpent, a coiling serpent, a monster of the sea. That's what Isaiah 27.1 says. Now if you'll turn into Psalms, Another one of the five times that it shows up is in Psalm chapter 74, verses 12 through 14. Psalm 74, verses 12 through 14. And this is what it says. And this was written by Asaph. So this is a psalm written by Asaph. But you, O God, are my king from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. So again, we are given an understanding out of Psalms as well as out of Job that God is bigger, stronger, more powerful, and able to control, tame, even overwhelm and destroy Leviathan. We're not given a definitive answer of what Leviathan is. For hundreds of years, if you read Matthew Henry, Adam Clark, or any of the older older guys going back hundreds of years they're all talking about trying to find out what he's representing of Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and what is this and all and then all of a sudden in the late years when we have all of the 1800s and the early 1900s when archaeological studies are taking place all of a sudden we have this thing come up that really is throwing people for a loop because it's oh my goodness oh my goodness oh my goodness did we have mythological junk coming into our scriptures Because what happened was, there was some archaeological findings in the Middle East from an area named Ugarit, U-G-A-R-I-T, in the Ugaritic tongue. Don't ask me where it's at, I didn't take the time to study it, it wasn't important to me. But in the Ugaritic tongue, in the area of Ugarit, there was evidence of a legend Dealing with Leviathan. And they don't use the word Leviathan, but everyone understands as they've been reading it that this is exactly what they're talking about. It still describes this snake-like creature that's a monster of the sea that has multiple heads. Seven heads, if I remember correctly. And there's this one seal that they found that showed Leviathan is fighting against some great being and four of the heads are laying dead laying just literally limp, while the other three are still fighting. So there's this great being fighting Leviathan and slowly destroying all the power of Leviathan until eventually, I mean obviously in this one seal all they found was this one moment in time in this legend, but this great godlike being 
is destroying Leviathan and ultimately ultimately destroys it and, and takes over and doesn't have any more problems with it. And what in that mythological, not mythological, but in that culture, the legend of this was that their God overcame chaos. Their God overcame all darkness. Their God overcame all evil. Everything that was against morality was destroyed by their God. So what scholars have now come to understand as they're reading these things and trying to understand what in the world is this Leviathan legend doing in our scriptures is apparently this legend was very well known in the Middle East for hundreds if not thousands of years. Just like we know, if I say to you, how many animals did Noah bring with him on the ark? You don't have to know what I'm talking about as far as a Bible chapter. You understand what I'm talking about. You don't need to know with me. I don't have to tell you the whole story. You understand exactly what I'm talking about when I say, how many animals of each kind did Noah bring with him on the ark? Well, did you know that there are flood stories throughout almost every culture on the face of the earth? Now, why would that be? Why would there be a flood story on a non-Christian or a non-Jewish culture? Maybe because it's common to all human history. So all humans have a historical reference back to a time of a worldwide flood. So this idea of a Leviathan fight, this huge serpent fight between the God and the Leviathan is a worldwide, Middle Eastern worldwide cultural thing where everyone understands it. So it may not be in Isaiah, Psalms, and Job that they're indeed talking about a specific real event as much as they're just referring back to some culturally, culturally significant understanding of the all-powerful being, God, destroying chaos, darkness, evil. Okay? So, in this prophetic writing in Isaiah, we have Isaiah speaking words of glory to God and worship to God, saying... In that day, when the Messiah comes, when the end of time happens, God, the Almighty and Powerful One, because this word Lord is Jehovah, Yahweh, the name that cannot be spoken. The Lord will punish with His sword, His fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan. We don't need to understand what Leviathan is to understand that our God is great, almighty, all-powerful, and able to destroy and slay that which brings chaos and darkness and evil. And at the end times, the Word of God says, God is going to vanquish Leviathan.
Now, we're going to move into the second section. Verses 2 through 11. In that day, again, this is a, a song of prophecy, a song of praise. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one can harm it. I'm not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I'd march against them in battle and I would set them all on fire or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yeah, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root and Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Now remember, this is an end times saying. In that day, the day of the Messiah, the day of the world, the time of the end, but if you were to go back 22 chapters to chapter 5 of Isaiah, you may recall if you were present that day that the very first seven verses of chapter 5 of Isaiah speak about the song of the vineyard. And if you remember, or you can just turn back and look at it, it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now turn back to Isaiah chapter 27. In that day, the day of the Messiah, the end times, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one can harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me. See, he said, I'm going to allow briars and thorns to grow in it. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep it from being watered. I'm going to turn it into dry sticks with no fruit and no productivity. And animals are going to trample it. That's what's going to happen as a result of their rebellion against me. But now in the end times, I'm watering it continually. I'm guarding it day and night so that no one can harm it. And I'm not angry. I mean, if only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle and I would set them all on fire. Or if they were to come to me, and make peace with me. I welcome that. Yeah. Let him come and make peace. In the days to come. Verse 6. In the days to come. Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom. And fill all the world with fruit. You see. God made a specific covenantal promise to Abram. Through your seed. Your offspring. I am going to raise up a nation of people and through that seed 
All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Isaiah chapter 5 talks about, You people have been in rebellion against me. You have submitted yourselves to the bales and to the asterisks, and I am going to bring about destruction. I'm going to pull off my hand of protection on you, and bad stuff is going to happen as a result. But Isaiah is now saying in 27, the day is going to come when God is going to restore that beautiful producing vineyard. And he will be the one to make sure that it's cared for and gardened and watered and been taken care of. And he will make, there won't even be briars or thorns anywhere. He wished that there could be. So he could show his loving care. And the end result, it's going to bud and blossom and fill the whole world with fruit. Now, I am not going to skip over. Yes, I am going to skip over. I'm going to skip over chapter 27, verses 7 through 11, because it is so confusing. I read so many different commentators, and there's so much diversity of opinion. And really and truly, the one thing you need to take from this is this. If you look at verse 10, uh, excuse me, verse 9. Jacob's guilt will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruitage of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the altar stones to be like chalk stones, crushed to pieces. No Asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. What God is saying is there's going to come a point in the relationship with Israel and God where their relationship with God is going to be so intimate and so pure and so rich that all vestiges of any other idolatry that was part of their world before is going to be smashed and destroyed and burned. There will be no holdout. There will be no toehold at all of anything that is not of God. It goes back to this idea of God, the great, almighty, powerful God, smashing, destroying, and slaying Leviathan. When you, my beloved, will come into final relationship with me, there will no longer be any chaos, darkness, or evil, and you will no longer have any desire for anything other than me. All of the rebellion, all of the turning away, all of the, forgive the expression, whoring of the people of Israel will finally be turned to chalk and dust and ash. And it will no longer be an issue And then finally, verses 12 and 13, in that day, the day of the Messiah, the day at the end, the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt. What this is basically saying, from the north to the south to the east to the west, you, O Israelites, will be gathered up, listen to this, one by one. And in that day, A great trumpet will sound. Those who were perishing in Assyria, those who were exiled in Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. The end times, there's going to be a gathering. But it's not just going to be a, y'all come! 
It's literally, the imagery here is as if a farmer coming up to the olive tree with a threshing stick and beating the topmost branches to get all of the ripe olives. Going out to the farthest, thinnest parts of the branches out on the, on the crown of the tree to get all of the olives. It's a very intimate, personal gathering. It's not just bringing in a combine and just pulling in what you can and whatever gets left behind gets left behind. This is literally intentionality on the part of the farmer getting absolutely every available fruit. It drops to the ground and then he gets on his hands and knees and he picks it up and gathers it into his basket. I read in my devotions this week and I tried so hard to find an image that I could share with you guys. God stoops down to look us in the eye like a parent getting down to look into the eye of the child. God doesn't just stand up here and say, I am the all-powerful, almighty, come to me and I will receive you. He literally, the word in Philippians says, he condescended. He gave up of his own glory. It, the, the, the theological term is kenosis, an emptying of himself, so that he could come and be among us as the imminent incarnate Christ walking around in the flesh. God emptied himself. He stooped down. He got onto the eye level of us. Came into the muck and mire of this world and showed us how to live. It was a very intimate, intentional wooing of those that he desperately loved. And Isaiah is saying prophetically, at the end times, the farmer is going to shake out all of the olives that are available and gather them to himself, one by one. So the image that I have for us to carry with us this week is this. God the Almighty, who is powerful enough to destroy the most huge, violent, chaotic, dark, evil thing, one you don't want to mess with, according to Job, loves you enough that he wants to bring about fruitfulness. He will not tolerate idolatry or adultery. And I don't mean physical adultery with another human being. I'm talking about your heart not being 100% his. And his ultimate goal is a one-on-one -on -one between you and him. I love this image. This is the image of Michelangelo's creation in the Sistine Chapel. The moment when God brings, puts life into Adam through the touch of God the Almighty, but being an imminent God, a close present God, and brings life. And that's what I want us to share as we spend this next few moments taking the communion. God, the Almighty One, the Powerful One, the Omnipotent One, desires relationship with you. 
even so greatly that he's willing to give up his own glory and his own power and his own might to stoop down to your level so that he can, in a one-by-one way, draw each one of us to him in vital, intimate relationship. That's the God we serve. He is a transcendent God, but he is also a very imminent God.